This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, this Wayward series is really uh, addressed and set up to speak to those who have walked away from the church, who have been prodigals, who have been wayward in their faith, who have disappeared for one reason or another, checked out on church. And the main aim of this series is that you would know, whoever you are, whether you're here this morning or you're watching online, is that you would know that God loves you. That's our heart, our, our driving motivation behind this series is that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that the God of heaven loves you unconditionally, sacrificially, unchanging, that he loves you. My journey as a young man was the journey of a prodigal, of a wayward. I grew up in a Christian home and went to church with my family, but what I experienced was a young man was a deep yearning to be accepted, and what I was looking for I didn't see in the church, I was searching for those things in the world, in my friendship circles, in the culture around me. And after pursuing them for a number of years of parting and trying to find the satisfaction and purpose that I so desperately longed for, it left me empty and disillusioned. And eventually God's grace wooed me back. His love drew me back in. And I believe that that experience has given me a heart for those who have also walked and wandered and been wayward in their faith and spiritual battlers. This series has been framed by the the most famous wayward story in the Bible, the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And the message that we looked at in our first week of this series was that God is the picture of the father in the story there. That he's exactly like that father. He has a heart of compassion that bleeds for that younger son, that is seeking for him, that is waiting for him, that is longing for him to come home. And the key message there is that God is willing to forgive anyone who would humble themselves in repentance and come back. He is waiting with arms open wide. We saw in that story the younger son, as Brad mentioned, comes with a plan that he has hatched to work off the debt that he has incurred. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you make me like one of your hired servants? And the father will have none of it. He welcomes him back into the family as a son. Because God is not adopting employees to pay their debt off. He's, he's not sorry, hiring employees to pay their debt off. He's adopting children freely by His grace into His family. What a wonderful privilege that is. That we're adopted by God. That we get to call the God of the universe, Daddy, Abba. That we stand to be co-heirs with Jesus along with Him, inheriting everything that the Father has. It's a wonderful privilege to be called a son or daughter of God. And this week we're going to be looking at what it means. If we truly are adopted into God's family, what does that mean for Christian community and for church? That's an important question. What does it mean for Christian community and church? Because the picture we see in Luke 15 is the picture of a younger son who ran and partied and came back and then partied a little bit more. He, he must have thought to himself, surely I have partied enough and here I am coming home and I'm sitting at my father's table with food and family and I'm celebrating. That's a picture of the church at its best. 
What does it mean if we've been adopted for us? What does it mean for church community and church attendance? Because so often people's objection is not so much to God. It's not that they've forgotten that God loves them. The problem is the people of God. Sadly, sometimes the church it looks way more like the older brother in that story, grumbling, complaining, and making it difficult for people to come to church. And today what I want you to see is that the church is beautiful. That the church as Christ's bride, despite its mess and its brokenness and its flaws, is worth committing to, is worth being a part of. Because it's the center of God's plans for our growth, our transformation, and this world. And so I'm going to pray that God would open our eyes this morning to see afresh, maybe see again for the first time in a long time, the beauty of God's people, what's and all. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you are the God who has reconciled us. Thank you that you are the God who is standing, waiting, with arms open wide, longing for us to come home, and that in the death of Jesus, you welcome us back. And I pray this morning that you would help us to see the beauty of your bride, the beauty of the church. I pray for every person who has wrestled with their faith, with what it looks like to be a part of your community, particularly for those, Father, who have been hurt and wounded and burnt, that you would bring healing. But God, open our eyes this morning to see the church as it truly is, a glorious ruin, a masterpiece of your grace. We ask it in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, Amen, amen. As I mentioned earlier, one of the main objections to church attendance and involvement in Christian community is the church stinks. It has, people have had a horrible experience. And I know that because of the amount of conversations I've had with people. I remember a conversation I had with one particular person who had an illness that was not terminal but lifelong that they couldn't get rid of. And the church kept telling them that the reason that they were sick was because that they lacked faith. And they believed and prayed and hoped that God would heal them and it never happened. And the church, instead of shepherding and caring and nurturing, pointed and condemned and said, where's your faith? Or I think of others who have told me that pastors said to them, if you leave this church, you're forfeiting God's best for your life. As if their church was the only church on the face of the planet. The only place where God's blessing was poured out. The only place where someone can grow and step into God's plan and purposes. Sometimes the obstacle is the church. People are generally okay with Jesus. We like Jesus. It just so happens that Jesus' people don't tend to live like him quite often, and that's a problem. People check out because their experience of church has been negative. Perhaps your experience was that Christians, for you, at least in your eyes, were hypocrites. They have a hierarchy of sins. There's a bunch of acceptable sins, generally our own, that we're all cool with. And then there's a bunch of other sins that we deem unacceptable that we're not cool with and we make a big deal about. Or Christians are hypocritical because we preach a message that we just don't seem to live ourselves. Maybe that's been your perspective. Maybe you, like the stories that I've shared, have been hurt by a leader, spiritually abused, told that your faith was defective. Maybe you were a part of a church community that just simply excluded you, didn't accept you as you were. Perhaps your experience with church community was that it was shallow and fake. It wasn't real. 
that people weren't vulnerable, that there was this pretense, this facade of spirituality that was a millimeter deep, and you could see straight through it. I mean, Anchor Church would never be like that, would we? That would never, ever be us. Well, actually, sadly, we're just as prone to anyone else as those mistakes because we're broken and the church is messy. But that's not all we are. I want to say to those who have experienced church like that and have stuck around and chosen not to give up, chosen not to walk away, thank you. Thank you for sticking in. Thank you for persevering. Because you have recognized a truth that is so significant in the Scriptures that you cannot say, I love Jesus, I like Jesus, I just don't like His people. Because Jesus and the church are described like a body with Christ being the head and there is this inseparable link between those two things. You cannot pull them apart. The church is described as Jesus' bride. He loves her. He woos her. He dotes over her. He died for her, shedding his precious blood for her. Despite the fact that there are parts of us that are horribly unattractive, that are broken and messy. As I think about church and what it means to be a part of a church, a Christian community, I think it's important for us to pull back a bit and frame this. In the big grand story of God. You see in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. God created people in his image and likeness to be relational people. To experience relationships with each other. To experience relationship with him in worship. And yet in Genesis 3 as sin comes into the picture. As the fall hits we see a fracture and a distortion of those relationships. The, the, the relationship we have with God is bent and broken and distorted as is the relationship we have with each other. It is distorted and twisted. You see that Adam and Eve wrestle in their marriage of what it looks like to be husband and wife. It's busted. It's broken. But the good news is that our Redeemer... Our reconciler, Jesus, comes and he restores that vertical relationship with the Father. And he also mends and repairs the horizontal relationship we have with each other. And he promises, he promises that there is a time coming where he will make all things new. Where we will worship the Father face to face just like we did in the Garden of Eden. And that those relationships that are broken will be repaired and restored again. No longer any sin or destruction. No longer hurting each other and being hurt. Now that's a very important distinction to note. Because the church are a pardoned people, but not a perfect people. Not yet, anyway. We're a pardoned people, forgiven by God. But we're far from perfect. Doesn't, doesn't even come close. I think it's important for us to have the right expectation about what Christian community looks like. Because sadly, often what we're really looking for when we come to church is heaven. And if you're looking for heaven here, you'll get a taste of it. But you really have to wait till Jesus returns and ushers his kingdom in. The church is not perfect. The church is not heaven. But we are a redeemed, pardoned people. And so what I want to do this morning is give you a picture of the church, of its potential, of its beauty in Christ. 
But before I get there, I want to give you a bit of context into this church that Brad read for us from Ephesians. The church in Ephesus was a church that was made up of two very distinct groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. That is every other nation on the face of the earth, the Jews and the Gentiles. And there was bitter, long-term and historic animosity between these two people. If you're a Jew, you view the Gentiles horrendously. They were unclean. You would never enter into the house of a Gentile. You certainly wouldn't eat food off their table because they did not practice the, the laws that the Jews abide by of food preparation. In addition, they sacrificed their food to idols. You didn't even want to go into their house because if you did, it meant you couldn't go to church next Sunday. You avoided Gentiles altogether apart from necessary business. You couldn't sell your home to a Gentile. You couldn't even sell your cattle. You never gave your son or your daughter in marriage to a Gentile. They weren't fit to look after your animals, let alone care for your sick. And in fact, many Jews would pray, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile. This type of animosity and division is seen even architecturally in the temple. There were three courts in the temple. The first court was called the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles and Jews could go. The second court was the court for the Jewish women. That's as far as they could go. And then the final court was the court for where the Jewish men could go. And at the entrance to the third court, archaeologists have found a stone plaque that was placed there with the words on it that said effectively, Blood be on your own head if you enter this area and you're not supposed to be here. The animosity was real. It's deep. There's probably hints of xenophobia and racism there. This is not like light-hearted banter between Aussies and Kiwis or Poms and Aussies over sport. Like This is deep division. Like Think of the relationship between Jerusalem and Palestine today. Think of the relationship between black and white in apartheid South Africa. That's the type of division that we see here. Type of hatred and into this animosity. Jesus performs a phenomenal miracle. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, that is Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both, that is Jews and Gentiles, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus has reconciled us in Christ. There is a a vertical reconciliation between us and God. There is also a horizontal reconciliation between people and each other. Not only is this relationship restored, but this one experiences a measure of God's grace and healing and mercy. How? Well, the law was done, was dealt with. You see there, it says that the law that the Jews obsessed over, the thing that created division, you couldn't eat at, a, at another person's table, you couldn't associate, you couldn't do business. The law that they were obsessed about that created, created division is done away with. 
Because no longer are you clean or unclean based on these external measures of observance, of food laws, of requirements, of circumcision. Now you are clean or unclean based on the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus does away with the law. And Paul uses this beautiful picture of a wall that has been erected that comes crumbling down, that is broken down. Now we, we, we know that walls have been used historically to divide people, to divide nations. Even today, you think of the West Bank barrier along the Green Line that divides Palestine and Jerusalem. Or you think of Trump's crazy proposed Mexican border wall. What a dumb idea that was. Walls are created to divide people. And there is, a in the first century, a religious and social wall that has been erected between Jew and Gentile that in the good news, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, literally comes crumbling down and falls. From 1961 to 1989, a giant wall stood dividing East and West Germany. A wall that was erected to prevent those from East Germany traveling to the West and fleeing the oppressive communist regime. And after a chain reaction of global events, in 1989, East German officials agreed to open the border up. And in a moment of freedom and the hope of democracy, Germans rushed to the wall from both sides and with hammers and pitchforks started breaking this wall down and reaching through the holes and not long after that, in I think 1990, a united new Germany emerged. One new country out of two as this wall was demolished. There are still monuments, parts of the wall that still stand in Berlin and other parts of Germany. as a reminder that we are now one. This thing used to divide us, but it does so no longer. And what we saw, those images that splashed across TV screens in 1989, is spiritually what happens in Christ. The dividing wall of hostility has come crumbling down. Jesus reconciles us to God and to each other by fulfilling the requirements of the law, by abolishing the consequences of failed obedience to the law. He has made himself one new person. Now, I've got to tell you, if the good news of Jesus can unite Jew and Gentile together, if it can create a church that is a beautiful mosaic of the gospel, if historically and stated enemies can sit down and eat a meal together over a table, that's phenomenal. If the good news can do that, it ought to be able to bridge any divide, any division, any difference. The result of this reconciling work of Jesus is that we are now family. We're family. Irrespective of race, irrespective of socioeconomic background, irrespective of whether you're a free person or a slave, irrespective of your class or your gender, we are family. Family. Paul reminds us that in verse 19, that when we're adopted in we're adopted into God's family, literally the household of God, the family of God. God is our father. Jesus is our older brother. And every other Christian is your brother or sister in Christ. The church truly is a masterpiece of God's grace. 
as he draws people together. That's why Paul prays in, in Ephesians 3.21 that the church would glorify God. Because the church has done in the gospel what the United Nations has only ever hoped to do. It has drawn together historic religious enemies and bound them together as one new people. It's a beautiful picture. And this is what the church is. This is what the church should look like. This is the power and the potential of the church to draw people in, to draw people together, to unite us as family, a community of grace, a community of love and peace and acceptance, a family, a healthy family. That's what the church should look like. Almost every other group, every other organization is built around something that's common, be it a, your, your race, your ethnic background, your socioeconomic background, your hobbies and interests. The church draws in every single type of person, irrespective of what you love, what you don't love, your hobbies, your skin color, your country of origin, the language you speak, everyone. There's nothing like it on the face of the planet that calls and draws people in like the church. But Paul is also pretty realistic. He gets that church is messy. And after painting this beautiful picture, he goes on to say this in the following verses. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Or 432. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. These instructions are realistic about where the church stands in God's big picture story, about what it means to be God's pardoned yet not perfect people. And he calls his church to live the message that we believe and preach about Jesus. You see, since God is a God who forgives, we ought to forgive. Since God is a God who reconciles and unites, we ought to maintain and preserve the unity, the unity that we have. Since God is patient with us, we are patient with each other, bearing with one another in love. The good news is not just theoretical. If it doesn't affect and shape the culture of the church, we simply don't believe it. Because God has done this, the church should look like that. And when the church does, I've got to tell you, it is Freaking awesome. It's amazing. There's nothing like the church. You know, we've had stories of people who have encountered what it looks like to be in a healthy church. And I'm not blowing the trumpet of anchor. I, I think we've got a great church. Um, but people have experienced a healthy expression of church family. I think of Viv, whose husband passed away a week after their first son was born. She didn't even make it to the funeral. Many of you were there. She was delivering the child. And this church, along with many others from other churches in the community, rallied together to provide for her financially so that she didn't, ha she didn't have any financial means in her first year. 
We were able to care for her, love her, bless her, buy her a fridge, provide for her needs. That's, that's what church does. Or I think of those who have had their car insurance paid by their gospel community. I think of those who have offered to pay for the counseling of another. Thousands of dollars so someone could go to counseling and experience the healing that they needed. I think of those who have helped people move house. How many countless times has that happened in our church? I mean, everyone seems to move every six months here. That's a lot of moving houses, right? GCs rallying together, helping, painting houses. I think of those who have, excuse me, sent flowers to those who are grieving loss and pain and brokenness. I think of the text messages that we have received. When my grandpa died a few weeks ago, I think of the meals that were cooked for new mums and new families who have got a new baby in their family and this church rallies together cooking meals for three weeks so that people don't have to cook a meal. Just so you know, we've got a baby coming in about five, six weeks' time, so I thought I'd throw that one out there. I think of those who have been offered lifts, the encouragement that has happened in gospel triplets, those who have weeped with those who are hurting. Think of even the healthy moments of conflict resolution. This is what the church ought to look like. I remember reading a, an article in the Sydney Morning Herald a number of years ago with the, the heading that said, Religious groups lead the way in public good. And the journalists just went through and listed all of these ways that the churches are doing and, and working to bless the local community. Volunteering. Volunteering with not-for-profit organizations. A disproportionate amount of church members working in what's called the caring professions. This is what the church should be like. And it's unfashionable to say. But my guess is we only hear a quarter of the story in the media and it's never good news about the church, is it? Perhaps maybe the negative experiences that people have had loom larger and cancel out some of the more positive experiences that they've had. But when the church functions like it should, there's nothing like it. As iron sharpens iron, as faith is nurtured, as people are encouraged, that's the church at its best. But maybe for many, or for some, that hasn't really been your experience of church at all. Your experience of church maybe was more like an episode of Desperate Housewives than what Paul has just described here in Ephesians chapter 2. I remember reading a book called Soul Survivor by Philip Yancey, and he talks about having an unconversion experience in the church. He went to church and he should have been converted to the good news of Jesus. His experience was the opposite. He got unconverted and walked away from the church. Maybe that was or has been your experience. Some of those things that I listed at the start have been true for you. Because of Christian leaders, you have walked away. Now, I don't want us to be naive about church leadership. I think leaders ought to be held accountable for their actions. Where priests have abused children, there, there better be justice there. Where pastors have embezzled money and stolen from the church, there ought to be justice. And you know, Jesus reserves his harshest criticism for religious leaders. No one else cops it in the Bible like the religious leaders did. He says in Matthew 23, 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the door to the kingdom in people's faces. Or in Ezekiel 34, 
God tells Ezekiel to prophesy against the false shepherds of Israel because they have fed themselves and not cared for the sheep. Where leaders have been abusing the flock, using the flock for their own ends, causing the flock to scatter, Jesus would call them to account and say, how, how dare you treat my flock like that? They're precious to me. The bar of leadership is very high in the New Testament. Godliness, character, integrity, and any leader who fails to exhibit that lifestyle, that lifestyle cancels them out, themselves out from leadership. And so I want to apologize to those of you who have been hurt by the church, by leaders who have failed to do what God calls them to do, to shepherd, to feed, to care for, and to nurture the flock. We grieve with you. That should never have been your experience. But the reality also is that church leadership isn't perfect. And I've got to tell you, honestly, this is a tough position. I've made mistakes. I've failed people. I've let people down. So maybe your experience wasn't one of horrendous spiritual abuse. Maybe your pastor just made a mistake. Maybe they messed up. And maybe you could extend them the same grace that you expect them to give you. I don't know what your story has been. But all Christian leadership should be modeled off the Lord Jesus, who was tender and gracious and gentle. Or maybe it was others, not so much leaders, but people, other people in the church that hurt you. Reality is that the people of God are often a poor reflection of the character of God. And some of you have given up altogether because of your experience of God's people. They've let you down. But I want to say that even when God's people don't reflect His character well, none of that changes who God is. He is still good. His love is still for you. It hasn't changed anything about what Jesus did on the cross for you. He is still gracious and forgiving. Please don't give up on God because His people have been a poor reflection of who He is. It's kind of like writing off a whole school based on the experience of one or two bad students in that school. Thinking, I will never send my children to that school because of those two students. We wouldn't do that because we recognize that sometimes it's just a small minority that give the broader group a bad reputation. And sometimes the church deserves its bad reputation. But other times, my guess is the experience has been with a small minority of people who are kind of giving everyone else a bad name. But I say to you, please don't give up. Please don't give up on the church. As messy and as broken as we are, there is so much potential there. There's so much goodness there. And it's a reminder for us Christians who are a part of the church that our lives matter. What you say matters. Your character matters. Your concern for others matters. We are the hands and feet of Jesus and he calls us to bind up the brokenhearted and to add value to people and to lay down our lives for others. Or maybe your experience was of Christian hypocrisy. You think, well, Christians are hypocrites. I'm done. I'm out. And I want to say it's true. We are hypocrites. But so is everyone else. No one lives consistently. None of us. No one is perfect. The real question isn't whether or not we're hypocrites. The question is whether or not we're willing to admit it. 
And whether or not in the gap between what we say we believe and our behavior, we're willing to fill that with grace or we choose to fill that with law. That's the real question. Everyone's a hypocrite. Are we willing to admit it? And are we willing to fill the gap with grace? You know, um, Olive Tree Media did some research with McCrindle Research recently, and they asked a bunch of average Australians if they knew any Christians. 92% of Australians said they knew a Christian. And then they asked them to associate a number of words with the Christians that they knew. They gave them a whole bunch of words and said, pick a word that accurately reflects your friend. The top six words were all positive. Words like caring, loving, kind, honest, faithful, traditional. I mean, even that's a pretty neutral word in some senses. Hypocrisy wasn't even close. 17% of people said, I would associate that word with Christian people. But if you were led to believe what we read in the media, and perhaps this is a, you know, a North American projection onto an Australian church, you believe that every single Christian is horrendously judgmental and hypocritical. That's not been my experience of this church. And I hope it's not your experience of this church. But maybe it has been your experience. Maybe that is legit. Christians were hypocritical. And again, it's not the way it should be. We ought to confess that. We ought to own that and then fill the gap with grace. Say, you know what? I messed up. It's true. I'm going to try by the power of the Spirit not to do that again. And Jesus forgives me as he does you. Or maybe your experience is that just Christian community was shallow and fake and just produced by this culture that's unwilling to let people in, to be honest. And we do that as a protective mechanism. We do that because we don't want people to really know that we've got problems. We want people to think that our lives are together and perfect. We've got it all sorted. We don't need help. We're independent. That's not what the good news of Jesus produces in the church. It's not what the community of God's people should look like. Because the good news frees us from this facade of trying to pretend that our lives are awesome. We know it's not awesome. We know we're not awesome. But we do have an awesome Savior. And so because we've got an awesome Savior, I'm free to be real. I'm free to confess. I'm free to admit my mistakes. I'm free to say I don't measure up because that's not my identity. That's not who I am. I'm not striving to pretend that I'm awesome. Christian culture should never be shallow and pretentious and fake. Maybe your experience has been negative. But I want to say to you this morning, that walking away from God's people, the church, because they've messed up and they've made mistakes, it may be a good reason to leave initially, but I want to suggest it's not a good reason to stay away for good. And we would never apply that same rhetoric to our earthly families. We would never apply that same rubric to our friendship circles. We're committed to people. Church is a family. It's the bride of Christ, and despite its mess and brokenness, it's beautiful. It has so much potential. And so I want to invite you, invite those of you who are here this morning, perhaps you're watching online and you, you live very far from Anchor Church, find a church, come and join us. Get back into the mess of Christian community and by the power of the Spirit and motivated by the good news of Jesus, for the glory of God, let's do life together.
And let's be real and honest. And let's forgive and love and be patient. You know, the frequent metaphor that the Bible uses to describe us is sheep. Sheep. And sometimes sheep are kind of dumb. You know, they wander off, they get lost. Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. And his sheep know his voice. They hear. And this morning, Jesus is calling his sheep back into his pen. Those who have wandered far off, those who are wayward, those who have been battling with their faith. Hear the call this morning of Jesus who calls you back into the pen. Reality is that we all have a tendency of a wayward heart. We all have a tendency towards a prodigal spirit. And so I think the, the words of the hymn, Come Thou Fount, are a very fitting way to close this series and turn into a prayer for us that God would draw us back. And so I'm going to use these words to pray for us as we close and respond. So let me pray. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God, we echo the words of this song this morning and say, please, would that be true for us? We're so quick to check out. We're so quick to walk away. We're so quick to say it's too hard. But this picture that you've given us of the church is too beautiful for us to walk away from. And as hard as it is, we want to be a part of it. And I pray that you'd help us to see in Jesus that you have called us to be family. And there is nothing better than that. As difficult as it is, there is nothing better than being part of your family. Help us by the power of your spirit to be the type of church that you want us to be. I pray for every person who is lost and wandering and wayward, that they would find a community of faith that they can belong to where they're accepted and loved and received like the Father receives us. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.